everyone. Welcome to Sundays with Saima. This podcast is made for aspiring otolaryngologists to learn from trainees and professionals in the field. I'm your host, Saima Wase, third-year medical student at Northeast Ohio Medical University. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Samib Kadakia, Division Lead of Head and Neck Surgical Oncology at Premier Health and Assistant Professor at Wright State University. He completed his medical degree at Drexel University. He then went on to complete his otolaryngology residency at Mount Sinai, followed by a fellowship in facial plastic and microvascular reconstructive surgery with a special focus in advanced head and neck oncology at Baylor Medical Center. Dr. Kadakia, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Saima. That was a really warm introduction. Yes, of course. My first experience with otolaryngology was in your OR. So I definitely have you to thank for my final decision to go into the field. Um, So can you take us back to a time when you were a medical student and how you discovered otolaryngology? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's really funny because I think in medical school, we really get very little exposure to, I think, many of the subspecialties such as otolaryngology, plastic surgery, urology, um, radiation oncology, et cetera, et cetera. And when I was first beginning medical school, the first thing that I, and again, at the time, I didn't really know anything about otolaryngology or any of the things that I do now, but um, I did really enjoy gross anatomy and I loved the cadaver dissection labs. And in that, I always felt like I not only had a good aptitude for it, but I really enjoyed the intricate anatomy of the head and neck region. So really not knowing much beyond that, um, the first year progressed, the second year progressed, And then kind of getting into my third year, I started looking into different careers when it came closer to applying for uh, for residency. And at the time, I did come across an otolaryngologist that was with Drexel and um, just started talking with him, shattered him a few times. And in a very short time span, I kind of realized that it was something that was very interesting. Again, at the time, um, before talking to him, I didn't even realize that otolaryngologists did surgery. Mm -hmm. To be honest, my, my view was so crude at the time that I just thought that it was, you go to their, their office and they look in your ear with an otoscope and that's pretty much it. So initially I didn't really think that was anything appealing. So then when I talked with him, I was just mind blown. And I was like, wow, they do neck surgery. They do head surgery. They can do cancer surgery and plastic surgery and all these different things. Um, and also at the time I was kind of also interested in GI and in orthopedics. So mm-hmm. I spent some time with each of the professions. I shadowed some of the doctors and spent some time in the operating rooms And then basically towards the end of my third going into fourth year, I realized that I really liked otolaryngology head and neck surgery because of the diversity of the cases and patients you take care of. I liked how comprehensive you're able to be. And Mm -hmm. um, it was something that was really rewarding in terms of, you know, it's such a broad field that you can focus on quality of life uh, type of procedures and thereby you can help elevate someone's quality of life. And then you can also be a cancer surgeon and reconstructive surgeon and thereby potentially elevate someone's quantity of life too. So really looking at the whole field, you can treat many different facets of someone's well-being and really how they identify themselves as a person. Right, right. And your specific training is in increasing quality and quantity of life with that special focus in head and neck oncology. Um, What drew you to that subspecialty? So when I was in residency, Again, starting residency, I didn't really know much about what the next five or 10 years were going to look like. But um, I have to give a lot of credit to uh, one of my chief residents. His name was Dr. Saman. And um, when I was on my head and neck rotation, and typically in most busy academic uh, ENT programs, 
when you're on your head and neck rotation, you get exposure to lots of advanced head and neck cancer surgery, lots of flap and microvascular reconstructive surgery. And I really, really enjoyed that block the most. And mm. I found that it was rigorous, but it was disciplined. There was a very intimate and special connection you made with your patients. Not to mention when you were in the operating room, sure, the procedures were arduous and they were long. But again, there was something just amazing about harnessing the um, really the knowledge of the human body, the anatomy that's there, and really knowing what resources we have to rebuild things mm -hmm. after a major cancer surgery has been done. So spending time on that rotation, I also got closer with my chief resident. And I found out that he was pursuing, well, ultimately what ended up being the same fellowship that I did. But he began telling me about it. And he began telling me about how he began identifying himself more sort of as someone drawn to plastic and reconstructive surgery. Okay. And through him, I kind of got a taste about really what that looked like. You know, what was craniofacial surgery? What was cosmetic surgery? What was major head and neck reconstruction? What was facial paralysis surgery? What was trauma surgery? And then how do you interface that with also taking care of patients who need major head and neck cancer uh, ablative work done? Right. So with him, I kind of got exposure. And then also through him, I began doing research. I got more and more interested. And as I grew as a resident, and then also as I began doing more research, began learning more about what opportunities existed, I realized that I also felt less and less inclined to pursue general otolaryngology. I didn't feel like I was really drawn to anything that general otolaryngologists do. They do amazing work, but it was just something that I didn't feel very motivated um, in terms of pursuing. But I really did feel like the challenges and also the um, really the subtleties and the relationships that you form with your cancer patients and patients that you provide major reconstructive work for was very, very special. And that was something that really drew me to pursuing that field. Sure, sure. It's very vulnerable, the, the moments that they go through when they're first diagnosed all the way through treatment. So the work that you do is amazing. And uh, as I know, especially coming from Dayton myself, that the city really appreciates what you've done for them. Um, I think you were the first person of your subspecialization in Dayton. So can you talk a little bit more about um, what it was like to develop that program from ground up? Sure. And that's definitely something that also drew me to Dayton is that before I was looking for careers, I uh, initially I was really focused on the East Coast back near where my parents were and where I trained. And um, then I saw this offering this um, really this position that was posted um, through Premier Health. And initially it was not meant to be the role that I've created it to be, but initially it was meant to be really just to fill a general ENT role. And when I first started looking at, uh, professions, I initially looked into that option, but I wasn't interested in doing general ENT. So I talked with them and I said, listen, you know what, I'm not really interested in doing any general work, but I have a very strong interest in building a comprehensive head and neck program. And it was really amazing. I mean, they were so supportive. And the more I began to talk with some of the doctors that were already in the area um, through ENT and oral surgery and oncology, et cetera, et cetera, I started realizing that there is such a need for this kind of work here, that we have such a tertiary level population in Dayton and realistically, between Cincinnati, where, uh, where UC is, and OSU in Columbus, we have such a tertiary level population in Dayton, but yet we don't necessarily have the full-fledged skill set to adequately take care of these patients. So many of them were getting referred out. And it was one of those things where I recognized that, you know, we had so many talents in Dayton. We had so many amazing resources. I mean, we've got great general otolaryngologists. We've got great general surgeons, great plastic surgeons, great uh, radiation oncologists and medical oncologists. But the one thing we didn't have was someone who was tackling advanced cancer cases, someone who was tackling advanced 
head and neck reconstruction, especially in those patients who, you know, had cancers that come, came back a second and third time, the patients who had, had radiation and then maybe had a failure and had cancer come back. Um, so that was something that really allowed me to think seriously about filling a niche and also providing a service to a community that was really in need of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I imagine there were multiple challenges in building a program that was comprehensive for the care of these patients. Um, what can you describe some of them to us? Yeah, absolutely. So, firstly, anytime you're doing something new, I think anytime you're bringing a new skill set to an area, there is a degree of inertia that you have to fight. You know, and that's that's inertia on your own end because, of course, for someone that's starting out, you know, when when you're graduating residency and fellowship. You're more interested and you're, you're really thinking about how you can build your practice, how you can operate, how you can kind of get your feet wet, but you don't really think about the logistic challenges, right? So first of all, it's sort of this time when, you know, the, the practical aspect also sits in. So then you're sort of faced with that challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part of you also looks at what's already existing in the community. And you realize that over time, you know, people sort of get um, uh, kind of used to doing things a certain way. And I think that really just speaks more and more to how important it is to continuously see our colleagues and our peers as as teammates and how important it is to not only develop ourselves and take care of our patients, but also make sure that we're continuously educating our colleagues and our community around us, that we're consistently learning and also being humbled by the challenges that we face. And that being said, I think really one of the biggest challenges was was taking the time to um, educate uh, patients and colleagues, educate referring doctors, really in terms of what these services look like, you know, things that people previously may have thought were not treatable, or people may have previously thought that certain patients were, were too complex to be treated in the Dayton area. It took a lot of time for me to explain to them that this is not true necessarily. You know, we, we've got everybody in town. Now it's just a matter of saying, hey, you know what, let's all come together under one umbrella and be colleagues, be collegial and take care of the patient the best way. And I think once you sort of make that habit, once you sort of start assembling a team, then the momentum builds. And then before you know it, um, people really, really find a lot of satisfaction working together as part of that team. And then, of course, um, then, our, then our ability to take care of more and more uh, complex patients also increases, too. Yeah, you mentioned the satisfaction from that um, tertiary level care that you're providing. Um, what, are, what are some of the revo- rewarding moments from your experience? So I think some of the most rewarding moments are really when you meet back with patients um, after they've been treated. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the one thing that I love about my profession is that I develop such a special relationship with my patients that many patients, you know, when they first walk in your door, they're a patient, right? But then you realize that you end up knowing them for, for years. Again, I'm three years into my practice, but many patients I feel like I've known for such a long time. And they really become more like family in a way. They become your friends. And you realize that the relationship, I think, between an oncologic and reconstructive surgeon and a patient, like you said before, uh, there are a lot of subtleties there. There are a lot of vulnerabilities and sensitivities there. You know, Mm -hmm. patients, when they come to us, they're so vulnerable because they're told that they have this potentially life-threatening diagnosis. And then you have to navigate the waters in terms of how do you win their trust? How do you properly educate them? How do you also let them know that, hey, they have options? Um, And then once they're treated, how do you kind of walk hand in hand with them and lead them to a better recovery, you know, address challenges that come in the way. And not only with the patient, you realize that what's very interesting about this field is that it's not just the patient, but you build such a special relationship with their whole family. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had young patients that I've operated on who you develop a special relationship with their mother and father or patients who come in and maybe they don't have any existing family members and their friends are their family or their neighbors, their family. 
And you realize that including those people also in the conversation and the decision-making not only makes the patient a lot more comfortable, but really allows you to affect better change. Because again, I think it just speaks to how important the team dynamic is nowadays. And by team, it's not just the medical professionals, but again, the patient and their family is just as much a part of our team. Right, right. That's so important. Just to summarize, like the challenges involved kind of going against the grain a little bit and building a program that involved educating providers and patients about the level of care that's available with this new program. And then the rewarding moments is being able to provide that care and keeping patients and their family members involved in that care. So it's an amazing program. I've seen it firsthand. And I I know that people in Dayton are very, very lucky to be receiving your services. So moving on to kind of a different subject, um, where how are you involved in the residency programs at Wright State and what's your role in the academic setting there? Sure. Uh, so that's also something very, very important to me and very near and dear to my heart because prior to me coming here, I was initially only interested in looking at major academic centers. And um, really, I feel like I kind of struck the best balance here because I am so fortunate to work with the many, many amazing residency programs here. And so what I do is um, I'm a faculty member with the ENT program, then the plastic surgery program through Wright State, as well as the general surgery program. Mm-hmm. So what I do is I serve as kind of the clinical instructor for the general surgery chief residents for their head and neck rotation, where they learn how to do ablative surgery, endocrine surgery, they get exposure to reconstructive surgery, mm-hmm. and then also really providing the same for the ENT residents, where mm-hmm. they also spend time with me and they learn flap techniques, uh, reconstructive work whether it be major reconstructive work, more on the minor side, trauma surgery. So really similar education that gets provided to both the surgery residents and the ENT residents. And then whenever um, I have trauma cases or major reconstructive cases, many times the plastic surgery residents will also join. Mm -hmm. So really through operative experience, I'll work with all three of the residencies. And then I also involve the residents in my clinic setting. Mm -hmm. I do lectures with them. I do research with them. Periodically, we'll host cadaver labs with them also. Yeah. So it's been it's been a very well-rounded experience, both from a clinical and an academic point of view. And sure. it's just really wonderful to not only be a mentor to the residents, but one thing I find is that it's incredibly humbling because you realize that the residents are a wealth of knowledge. Not only are they extremely skilled, but they get to work with so many different attendings who are wonderful. So mm-hmm. you also learn through working with them. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're open to recognizing what strengths that the residents bring to the patient's care, then you end up learning just as much as they're learning right? Because there could be some predicament that we have intraoperatively. And maybe you're with a resident that says, hey, you know what, I I read about this technique, or I saw someone do it this way. And before you know it, you're like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. It's reasonable. There's no, there's no downside to it. Let's try it. And most times it works really well. So through that, I feel like I get to be a better doctor and a better surgeon by working and learning from them too. That's great. Um, You mentioned your research too. Uh, What is your research focus? So most of the research that I'm interested in really deals with um, reconstructive surgery. Mm -hmm. So a lot of flap reconstructive surgery in terms of I like um, I like working on papers, looking at um, kind of outcomes from different uh, flap techniques, comparisons of flap techniques. I like working on um, technique papers where sort of if there's been an interesting case or an interesting technique or modification of one that I've performed, I like writing that up and really using it as a way to allow other practitioners after me and students and residents all the same to be able to learn from those. Um, I like doing those papers. 
And then also with medical students and with residents, I think writing research or uh, review papers is also important because it kind of gives a nice summary to existing literature and also allows us to have a manual that we can look forward to also refreshing our own knowledge base. And where do you see the future of the field heading? So that's a great question. I think nowadays what's interesting is really, and, and I'll speak more to kind of microvascular reconstruction, um, what we call free flap surgery. Mm -hmm. And maybe 40, 50 years ago, this was something that wasn't, it wasn't being done as much. Mm -hmm. But now in 2021, I mean, free flap surgery is really the standard of care for many, if not most, major head and neck procedures. You know, of course, there are many head and neck surgeries that don't require major reconstruction. But then whenever we talk about very advanced um, oncological ablative surgery, nowadays with the advent of free flap reconstruction, we're able to give patients a significant portion of the quality of life back and really things that we weren't able to do many years ago. Mm -hmm. And that being said, I think this, this, this uh, reconstruction modality has really become at the forefront worldwide almost. Mm -hmm. And what I envision is that as time goes on, I see more of a blend with technology. And to give an example, whenever I do mandibular reconstruction, right. what's amazing is that I can do a lot of the planning of the resection even before the surgery. And mm -hmm. what I can do is based on CT scans, I can work with engineers over the computer and we can look at the patient's mandible on their CT scan. We can design where we think the mandibulotomy cuts should go. Using that, I can fashion plates that they can 3D print for me beforehand. We can design what kind of bone graft and what kind of free flap orientation we're going to have during surgery. So really that, 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 that really that 15 minutes that I spend with the engineers before the surgery can yield a tremendous amount of information, decrease the amount of time under anesthesia for the patient. So I think utilizing that technology, I am curious to know if in the future we have ways of doing additional 3D printing. Mm -hmm. You know, are there ways that maybe these procedures that are very um, arduous and time sensitive, is there a way that maybe using 3D printed constructs that are biocompatible, maybe it obviates the need for major reconstructive surgery sometimes. Um, you know, we see a lot of these implants being designed for trauma patients, even for other reconstructive patients. You know, is there a further role for them? Is there a further role to maybe map out patients' blood vessels and vascularities that gets us a better idea of, hey, listen, um, how can we predict if a flap is going to have an issue? You know, we have certain technologies available, like what's called the SPI technology, okay. that's used in a lot of centers where we can kind of get an idea of what perfusion looks like. But is there a way on maybe a, a more intricate level or a more robust level where we can kind of map out and have a better understanding of this. So that's really, I, I really see technology as becoming more an integral part of reconstructive surgery in the future. Yeah, that's so exciting to be at the frontier of all of that technology. And it sounds like you've been able to strike the perfect balance between an academic career in a, in a place that didn't even have a head and neck comprehensive cancer program. So can you talk about um, a little bit how you're able to manage your career and work-life balance? So that's also a great question because as a young attending, I think that's something that I have to revisit on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. And it's something that, you know, you when you love and you have a strong passion for what you do, work doesn't always feel like work, right? It just, it feels like something enjoyable. Like mm -hmm. when you go when you go to work and it's time to do surgery, it doesn't feel like work. It's something that I look forward to. But right. that being said, it's equally important to make sure that you're giving time to yourself, that you're giving time to your health, your family, your wife, your children. So what I do is I make it a point to try to have uh, time during the week where I can really dedicate more of my time and attention to my family. I make it a point that, listen, if I have uh, some long days in the operating room, that I'll kind of make up time for my family in other ways. You know, I'll, I'll wake up early on a weekend and um, do everything for my kids, make breakfast. Um, 
you know, spend time with them. We'll take walks. And then of course, in the evenings, um, depending on how the week goes, just making special time where we can do really quality bonding activities at home. Um, so I think that's one way to do it. And then a second thing that's really important I found is really learning to shift kind of your presence of mind where, mm-hmm. you know, what you say that when you're at work, you're going to dedicate your presence of mind to your patients, to your colleagues. And then when you get home, maybe finding a way to say, listen, how can I increase really my focus, right? Because what you find is that when it comes to, I think, um, managing a busy practice with also your family is that it's not so much the quantity of hours in any one direction as it is the quality of the time that you spend. You know, if you have a conversation with a loved one and you give them 100% of your attention, they're going to feel like you spent five hours with them, even if it maybe it was the best 30-minute conversation you had all week, right? So I think that's something that, again, it sounds idealistic and I'm not going to say that I'm that I'm a pro at it. It's something that I work at every single day. Mm-hmm. But um, that's one way that I manage time with my practice and my family. And then as far as personal time goes, things that I really enjoy doing, I love exercising. So I make it a point to wake up early every day. I exercise and I read in the morning times, um, in the evenings and weekends, depending on time. Um, I really enjoy cooking. I like being outdoors. Mm-hmm. My wife and I love traveling. So we'll make time for all those things. And really, that's a great way for us to balance out our work in our life. It's amazing how you do it all, Dr. Kadakia. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a work in progress. I, I can't say it's uh, it's not perfect in any regard. So, <laughs> so in the academic setting where you work with multiple residency programs, what are some of the factors that you'd say would make for a strong candidate in a competitive specialty like otolaryngology? Sure. Well, I think one thing that we really value, and myself definitely, is the ability of a candidate to have grit. Right. And I think grit is one of those kind of all-encompassing terms that to me really tells me that, you know, a a student or a resident that has grit is someone who um, is really enthusiastic and is encouraged, someone who wants to learn, wants to do the best they can, and is continuously sort of in a student mindset, right? And in medicine is that we're all students to different degrees. We're all learning every single day. Um, I think having grit sort of symbolizes to me that not only are you thirsty to to grow your, your surgical skill base, your knowledge base, but you're also willing to kind of put your head down and do the work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think surgery is a very immersive field where when you do the work is when you work, when you learn the most, you can't learn a lot of high level surgery from watching videos and reading books. Again, that's going to form the foundation, but it's not until you immerse yourself, you know, have that conversation with the patient, be attentive during surgery, um, practice on your own, see what someone else is doing. Like those are the things that really get you to learn the most. So Really, I think having grit uh, not only involves that, but is also there's something to say about having resilience, having humility, and then also this ability to kind of have have um, enough of a mindset where you realize that you know what there are going to be good days and there are going to be bad days. Um, you know, complaining about things I think isn't necessarily a constructive way of making progress. I yeah. think there are ways of improving an experience that's less than ideal, whether it be by a conversation, whether it be on a larger scale, if it's something programmatic or something um, more um, uh, like shifting a standard, for example. Um, But I think really all of these skills that generate grit, that generate resilience, I think those things really make someone who is going to be a great resident and a great student for that matter. Um, And then to go one step further, I think also in terms of being more and more competitive for challenging specialties is really the, I think the desire to accomplish more and more in a short period of time whether it be research, whether it be, I think, gaining amazing life experiences. Mm -hmm. One thing that I was always told was from a very early year, start building your CV as much as you can. You know, when you look at your CV right now, it might be 
And again, it does, you're not measuring it by length, but if you look at how many entries you ha have on it, maybe tell yourself, you know what, in the next year, I want to maybe do this research, or I want to go travel to this place. I want to volunteer in this regard, whatever it may be. Right. And I think what you realize is that when you have that mindset that you want to be productive, you want to learn through experiences, um, you want to be pro um, prolific in some regard, then you realize that over the course of years, that all kind of exponentially increases. And I really think that when you go into challenging specialties, not only is it about having someone who's extremely book smart, but really someone who's gained an amazing amount of life experience by being immersed in a variety of experiences, right? Because all of those different experiences teach us something about life, teach us something about relationships and work ethic and how we're going to be as surgeons and doctors. And I think all those things combined make a really good doctor. Thank you for sharing those valuable pieces of information. Uh, I think that's going to be very helpful to people applying to otolaryngology. So any final thoughts? Well, I'm just very, very happy to be here, Saima. And uh, I wanted to take a few minutes just to say thank you so much for inviting me. And I'm really excited to be more and more a part of this community. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me today. Catch us on the next episode of Sundays with Saima. <laughs>